This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. a lot that you're taking some of your time to speak to me. Um, I know that you recently left Beirut and you're currently in Houston. All right. I'm in New York and uh, I'm going to take a wild guess that it doesn't really matter where you are at the moment. Uh, I think for better or worse, sort of the mind drifts back to Beirut, even when it shouldn't. Yeah. And a lot of what you wrote in your recent piece in the Wall Street Journal resonates with me. Someone who's Lebanese, someone who's been going in and out of Beirut my whole life. There, there are things you wrote that, uh, that I saw and I, I sort of, uh, I experienced on my own and then I re-experienced them recently. And then I could sort of, I, I, I sensed your pain. And it's the pain I think of somebody who, uh, who thinks twice before calling Beirut home, even when maybe that's where they want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get into all of this, and uh, I'd like to just ask you from from the beginning, uh, sort of you, your family's well-being, your daughter's well-being, and and your own well-being. Uh, now that you're sort of maybe a bit detached, I mean, it's only been a month and a day or two. It's yeah. it's nothing, a month and three days. Although it feels like it could have been yesterday, but regardless, yeah. uh, is there some perspective now, and and your own maybe your own well-being? And just sort of looking at that horrible incident, and it's a stupid question. I don't know how to ask it otherwise. But how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a hard question to to answer. To be honest, um, you know, our daughter. It's been good for our daughter to be removed from Beirut because in mm. Beirut, every day you're just surrounded by reminders of the blast, the shattered glass, and the recovery, and the soldiers, and all of the problems that were there beforehand. And so um, removing her from that and being in a place where she can feed ducks and run in the park. And, you know, she, we, there was um, a, a light being fixed in the street, a stoplight. And first she's like, Oh, that's broken from the blast. And we're like, no, it's, yeah. it's the blast didn't happen here. Yeah. So um, that's really good for her to know that, to be able to put it in context as a four-year-old that, you know, the blast didn't happen everywhere. And there are places where she can feel safe. And there was a huge thunderstorm here last night. And, you know, we watched the thunderstorm outside and she was scared, but I think it was good for her to understand that big booms aren't all explosions and they're not all dangerous. You know, um, she's, she's, she still has scars. We have to treat her injuries every day. Um, so, you know, we talked about the blast this morning, you know, she, she, you know, she asked me to tell one of her stuffed animals, the story about the blast again. So 
you know, it's still very much in our minds. Um, I don't know how to, you know, the essay was really my way of trying to understand it for myself. And I don't even have any answers for myself really about the blast because, you know, we loved, we loved our life in Beirut and we loved our life in Lebanon. And up until, you know, 607 on August 4th, we were, you know, really just so happy there. And to, you know, to have your life upended so swiftly and abruptly, it's, it's hard to, to digest and process. You know, I think there's a, there's a bubble that, uh, and it's, it's, it's quite sturdy. You can live in Beirut and pretend to a certain degree that things are relatively fine. And I think a lot of us that go in and out uh, have that sort of, it's almost like a protective shield. That in, in a way, you, you hint at it too, that you can go to the beach in, in maybe perhaps Petrun, or you can uh, sort of have an evening out with friends. Um, and there's a leisurely sort of atmosphere that's very attractive. And then you sort of try to figure out your own red lines of right. when's the moment that it's perhaps too unstable so that the bubble may burst. And what you wrote is my own sort of, it's the own step-by-step -step process that I have. And you start, you start talking about things like, would it require school to shut down and therefore your daughter can't stay or perhaps petty crime or even violent crime car sort of carjackings or even break-ins robbery these things and and yet when they start happening you still stay so the red lines are not really there there's almost like an imaginary red line situation and i and i don't i'm not going to speak on your behalf but i i'm curious if that happened to you that it, those red lines are just they're not necessarily the red lines you will stay despite crossing those lines over and over and over, not assuming that something that horrible will happen. Right. But, but it's almost like the cautionary tale doesn't really exist. You will stick it out regardless. D did that happen to you? Yeah, we didn't, we didn't cross any of the red lines that mm. we had set. We were still in the process of, um, of uh, you know, in the, pet, the school closing and violent crime were sort of the things that we thought would be our red lines, but yeah. it is, it is a lot like the, you know, the frog in the water where you, know, right. you put the frog in the water and if you turn it up slowly, it'll stay and boil to death. But if you put it in, it, it jumps out. Exactly. And definitely. Yeah. It was, it was getting worse. And we were at the point where we were thinking about, do we need to put a, a metal gate on our door, um, for extra security for potential property crime, because that's where we thought, and that's where things were headed was, the hunger crimes, the rising hunger crimes and street corner crimes of desperate people that just need to feed their families. And, yeah. and, and those were the kind of things where we, we felt like they were heading very quickly, but we hadn't, uh, we hadn't crossed any, any red lines for us yet where we mm -hmm. were like, well, we're still going to stay. Yeah. You know, and you, you also described this situation of living in DC beforehand that it's yeah. the most dangerous city you've, you've experienced. And then, yeah. I mean, I lived in DC when I was younger and I used to always try to explain Beirut to anyone passing through that, no, it, it feels, it feels less dangerous in Beirut than it does in DC. And that's, yeah. that's true. You can kind of, there's this certain, there's a certain type of crime that in Beirut for the large part wasn't there up until mm -hmm. maybe until last year, it sort of, uh, it, 
and it's an unfortunate consequence of the sort of economic collapse of the of, of the country. But I always feel I always felt safer in Beirut than I did anywhere else. And I also like that it's hard to schedule a coffee in DC, <laughs> but that's the that's the easiest thing to do in Beirut. And yeah. when when you were moving to Beirut, I mean I'm guessing you had been there before. It wasn't sort of the first time you had set foot in the city. Yeah. Was there any sort of could you imagine this kind of incident ever happening in Beirut? And I and I ask and I ask it because I could not ever have imagined this. That this sort of this is beyond civil war like violence. This yeah. is a this is a very unique type of event. Did you sort of could you ever imagine a scenario like this? No. I don't think anybody could have imagined it and that's why, you know, we felt comfortable moving there with our daughters because you know there we certainly i fully expected there to be another war with israel during our time right. yes in in lebanon but those are you know y you have context for uh understanding how war will happen you know the kind of bombs that each side uses and uh you can you know you know what parts of the city are most at risk and you know, they did, Israel did bomb the port in 2006, but when we moved into our place in East Beirut, a half mile away, I was like, it's far enough away from the port that even if they bomb it, we won't feel any direct effects of it. Right. And, and, and you know, that's been the jarring thing about thinking about whether we're going to continue living there is this was an incident that probably won't happen again. Right, right. Uh, so, you know, Understanding that um, rationally is different from understanding it psychologically and emotionally. And um, even if it's not going to, so you can say to yourself, it's not going to happen again. I'll, I have lots of friends who are like, this is, you know, someone said to me yesterday, this is a, these kinds of things only happen once every five years in Beirut. So you could go on with your life there and return to that level of normalcy. But mm. for us, normalcy was back to that situation where it was COVID pandemic lockdown, right, and right. hyperinflation and, you know, uh, being unable to buy things at the supermarket unless you sell your money in the black market and power outages where our food was spoiling in the fridge because the power is out. And, and so, you know, when we started to, when the dust settled and we started to think about whether we could return to any kind of sense of normalcy, that's when you kind of get back to the situation where you're like, well, normal isn't really normal. And, you know, all of the things that we love about Beirut are harder to hang on to. And it's harder to find, you know, a comfort in uh, making the best of the situation in Beirut with everything else that's, that's happening. You know, and I like that you use the word DNA or you, you sort of, you describe that something fundamental has changed. This is not a sort of uh you can compare it to assassinations, the car bombings that have sort of become too familiar in Lebanon, or even war, whether it's Hezbollah and Israel or, or other type of conflict, that that always gets sort of lumped into politics, that those are political problems, and then there are casualties. But this is not a, this is not just a politics story. This is politics entering your own home and, and, and then injuring your relatives, destroying your home and forcing many Lebanese to, to leave the country 
And you also said, I like the way you described it, for every person vowing to stay, two seem to be making plans to flee. And that is the brain drain that we're seeing regardless. But that, the, the, the DNA, I personally feel that there's no going back to August 3rd. And for that matter, it's harder now for me to see a situation where October 16, 2019 returns. That there seems to be a, a shift. And that shift may not be positive in the near future. It may actually be more painful. And we may see some, we may see real collapse in the country. But did you sense that, that, I mean, in the aftermath of the blast, that you sort of, you, you saw with your own eyes the, the panic, the suffering, the, the trauma, you experienced this yourself. Do you sense that there's no going back? That the, the normalcy that you described, which is the unfortunate, that's almost like the, the abnormally normal <laughs> situation Lebanon is always in. Do you see that as sort of yeah. over, that there is something different now? And, and using that, using DNA, that maybe the, the Lebanese spirit has changed to a point that Beirut's no longer the Beirut that we think of necessarily. I, I don't, hadn't even lived there a year. So, you know, my people like you and other people are much better able to answer that question. For me, it was like, it was a psychological, you know, I've, I, I first went to Beirut in 2006. And at that time, you know, there were lots of people warning about a new civil war. Yeah. And, and I always felt like that was always overblown that, you know, that people, the younger generation, people didn't want to return to the civil war. There really was a sense that that kind of sectarian violence would never return to the levels that there was. Um, and I still feel that way, but I think that the psychological violence that this blast, uh, imposed on Beirut changed, changed it in a way. And I, and we don't, we won't know really how that will manifest itself for mm. probably months and years. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, on the positive side, you know, the Marmachael, Jamezi, Carantina were flooded with volunteers, young people that knocked on our doors with yeah. food and offers to help and sweeping up. And within days, you know, just thousands and thousands of people the same people that were there out on the streets last October were, you know, out helping the neighbors and, yes. and turning things around. And, you know, that's an inspiring thing and should be, you know, that, that, that spirit lives on that spirit is moving the country. Mm -hmm. Um, and people are trying to rebuild and physically the blast you know, only affected a certain part of the city. If you are in, you could go to Hamra, you can go to West Beirut for the most part and life still goes on. People are, you know, it doesn't have that same psychological effect on that side of the city as it did on the other side. Yeah. So I don't want to, I'm not an expert. I haven't lived there through all of the changes. Um, I don't know, you know, how it's going to manifest itself, but I think, it, it did change Beirut forever and it's, and we're going to see in the coming weeks, months and years, exactly how, how it's going to do that. You know, the, I cover politics. So I deal with a lot of U S officials who, you know, are trying in the Trump administration, are trying to use this kind of as leverage to pressure the government to 
enact reforms to marginalize Hezbollah. Right. That doesn't seem like that's going to happen on the political level. And as you said, like in the short term, I think uh, there's no sense that anybody wants any fundamental reforms, which is not a positive side for the direction of the country. But it is, it is still an unwritten chapter in how Lebanon and Beirut respond to this and, and where it goes from here. You know, I, these are two pieces I'm going to link up. The, the first is your essay, The Family Scars Left by the Beirut Blast, which came out on the 3rd. But the, another recent piece, which you wrote in, I, I believe it was mid-August, uh, is the U.S. prepares sanctions against Hezbollah's allies in Lebanon. And I like that these are sort of, they're offering two sides here, your own personal experience and what you said earlier, which is the political background story. And I, I'd like to gauge your mind on uh, on the Maybe the pressure that we're seeing to not let things stay the same way and I'll, I'm saying this in a very sort of vague almost uh, almost a, like a naive way that there's no appetite to help Lebanon the way countries used to help Lebanon it's not just American only I mean most Gulf countries I think have very little appetite from pumping money into the country and uh, for all of Macron's sort of uh, antics, there's probably limited work that can be done anyway. And it yeah. seems like he's probably the most proactive. And then you have the Americans that are more maybe behind the scenes and recent visits, whether it's David Hale or, or David Schenker. But yeah. that, that approach, at least from the American side, where they're seeing maybe an emphasis on Hezbollah, that is unusual. And unusual also in that there is domestic uh, dissatisfaction with Hezbollah today that has, it's, it's largely different than other sort of protests or other sort of uh, criticisms of Hezbollah, that they seem to be on the radar, at least when it comes to domestic concerns and, and corruption and, and those things, but also in their involvement outside. And that sort of, the rhetoric has increased. Do you sense that the Americans are 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 really able to maybe push for reform and also rein in Hezbollah in, in a way that they see fit, meaning that the money, the the weapons, the the security, the sovereignty of the country is something that can be fixed, and then alongside you have a capability for genuine reform because that seems so. It seems so ambitious and so optimistic. And then, I mean, yeah. you're in Lebanon and that doesn't really seem possible. So, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe the question is not being phrased properly, but how far do you think the Americans will actually go in, in trying to preserve what's left of Lebanon's sovereignty and, and maybe encourage at least genuine reform? I, <clears throat> my sense is that the... The U.S. has a lot less influence right now than it might have at, at other periods of time in, mm, mm. in Lebanon. You know, it's not, they have a new ambassador. Uh, it's not a very active embassy. You know, right. a lot of stuff is centralized in Washington with an administration that's in the middle of a, an election fight. Um, and, you know, there are a number of people in the State Department, like you mentioned, David Hale and David Schenker, that care about Lebanon and are, are, are trying to deal with the um, uh, with the sanctions and things like that. Right. Yeah. Um, 
my understanding is that this week, as soon as this week, they're going to try and impose some new sanctions on some former Lebanese officials, kind of low level, um, as a way to uh, try and put pressure. There's been a big debate about uh, whether to do that with Gibran uh, Basile, yes, uh, the former right. foreign minister, and there's an active debate about doing that. Um, about a week after the blast, we went to see Basile. Uh, oh. after, we, after we wrote this story where we mentioned him, he actually invited us to his home uh, to talk about it. And um, I think you've been punished enough just for being in Beirut. This is unnecessary. <laughs> this is brutal. See? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was my first time meeting him oh really um, oh i see yeah okay. <laughs> yeah and uh you know he said something probably you know people who watch this podcast are familiar with his you know he's seen as the the main ally who's helped support hezbollah through all of this of course and you know we talked to him about how the u.s wants to to sanction him and mm -hmm. he said well if they're going to sanction me they've got to sanction Every politician, right, right. you know, in Lebanon, yeah. Saad Hariri on down, yeah. you know, who've worked with them and you can't marginalize a large a section. You can't, you know, he's like, we're in the minority here as Christians. You know, we can't, if I could run the government, I would do it differently, but they're the majority. And so that's an argument, you know, that I'm sure you're very familiar with. And that's sort of the argument of the people there. The other thing that he he said a lot of things that were sort of interesting to me on this point about changing. You know, he was like, rightly or wrongly, he sees himself as the face of the anti-corruption movement. And you know, he says, you know, I went in to fight corruption, and but the corrupt people, you know, beat me down, and I didn't have enough allies. And so he was very much sort of eschewing any blame on his part. He's like, I tried, I couldn't do anything. You know, it's not my fault. We're in a confessional system that no one person can change everything. And I gave him opportunity after opportunity to kind of say, like, look, this is your opportunity. You're you could be president of this country someday. You know, um, yeah. what do you have to say to the people of, Bay of Lebanon about turning the page? And, right. and he just kept saying, well, it's not my fault. I didn't I didn't know it was there. And there's only so much I can do. And to me, that was kind of a a dispiriting sign from somebody who, you know, could at least say like, you know, look, we are resilient and we will ra rally together. And this is the time for us to set aside our divisions. And he didn't say any of that it really fundamentally change the contours of how the country runs and try something different. You know, I, I mean, but in a way he's also admitting that what he says about sort of everyone has to work with Hezbollah. So therefore they should all be sanctioned. And then it's almost like an active denial that he is really part of, he's so central to that structure. And so, I mean, it's, it's, it's admitting that he probably deserves the most sanctions at the same time and then blaming everyone else for the situation too. And then acknowledging that Hezbollah is central to, to the story right now. But, but if sanctions are going to go beyond, let's say Gibran Bessir, and if I'm not, I hope I got this right in your piece, there's even hinting at, potentially Hadidi's allies that are seen corrupt, as corrupt. But these yeah. are these are broad sanctions. There's a lot of caution all the time uh, towards Hezbollah. Yeah. And then you have sort of a more aggressive policy. So do you see them as sort of willing to deliver on that in, in, in the ways that they see fit? Or is this really just rhetoric right now and maybe a pressure game 
against uh, Hezbollah? I think it's I think it's probably more a pressure game. Mm, uh, mm. You know, th- th- there are divisions in Washington over who to sanction and when to sanction American supporters in the Trump administration who think sanctioning him or you know close allies is a step too far. Yes, uh, right. And and you know, some I think the fact that some of these people spoke to me is a way for them to try and send you know kind of a a warning shot, you know, shot across the bow to these people that if they don't get their act together, then this could happen. But they've been firing those kind of shots for quite a while without actually acting on it. So yes. I'm not sure how seriously people take it. Right, right. You know, Americans are mostly concerned about Hezbollah's influence uh, in helping Iran and the threat to Israel, right? right. Those are the, yeah. the things that America worries about more than people in Beirut, Lebanon, who are more concerned about the dysfunction and the corruption and and yeah, the, the sense of the direction of the country. So, the, yeah, they're not overlapping very, very much. Right. That seems to be the wider story all the time, though. That's These interests don't line up properly at any given point. Well, yeah. The most important thing, I, I, and I, I just want to say this, I'm, I'm happy your daughter, Iman, is now living a more comfortable life and that uh, what she's expressing as a four-year-old, you, you eloquently... Uh, portrayed in the story for Sema, the Syrian sort of Aleppo story, that I, I think it resonates well with anyone who's grown up in a very violent environment and then seeks refuge away from that violence. Um, I think it's almost cliche that any time there's sort of a sound of something warlike, you're taken back to Lebanon. That's been with me most of my life. Um, I'm happy you have some respite from that part of the world. And if you don't return to Beirut, I'm sure it's for the, it's for the wisest reasons possible. And if you do return to Beirut, um, I think that kind of commitment is what really draws a lot of Lebanese and foreigners who love Beirut back home. And I sense this is a struggle all the time. And we end up making both choices all the time. There's lulls that you return, there's periods of chaos that you stay away, and sometimes it's sort of impossible to gauge which one is happening. But regardless, I hope the Houston humidity is less oppressive. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> than Beirut this time of the year, and uh, yeah, I <laughs> and you're very kind to give me some of your time. So I really appreciate that, Diane. And I'll just say Thank one you. last thing. Uh, my family, we were, we leaked a missive by my father to the Wall Street Journal, uh, December twenty eighth, two thousand thirteen, a day oh, after yeah. he was killed. It was called a letter to Rouhani. Nor Melas was the Wall Street Journal reporter at the time in Beirut, and we chose uh-huh. her. We wanted her to uh-huh. sort of have the letter, and they went public, and it was it was published the same day. So I've been a fan for for maybe more personal reasons than others, but uh, I still subscribe and pay to the Wall Street Journal. So <laughs> I enjoy your pieces, and I look forward to reading more down the road. Thank you. So thank you, thank sir. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.